chapter 17. Today, Acts chapter 17. There it is. Let's see what Acts chapter 17 has to say. So Paul, I'm sorry that's not any bigger, but there it is. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. The inscription was, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And that is the word. For today, this is an amazing scene, really. It just sort of comes in the middle of a storyline. That's how it often goes. So we've got to, we have to give it context so that we can appreciate what the scene actually is. <clears throat> Paul, at this point, had traveled a long way from Jerusalem. A long way from Jerusalem. And not just a long way geographically, though it was a long way geographically. But in, in another way, Paul had traveled a long way from Jerusalem um, Religiously, if I could put it that way, right? Worldviewishly, he had traveled a long way from Jerusalem in the in the in the realm of ideas, because he was in the great and ancient historic city of Athens. Some people, in fact, say they said this long ago that that Athens and Jerusalem are the two cities that symbolize the cradle of Western thought because you have all the contributions of the ancient Greeks to the arts, to philosophy, and to even the early sciences and some mathematics and studying the stars and early democracy and all this. And then you have the monotheistic moral framework of Israel and the Jews in the Old Testament, which for a lot of people, those are the, the sort of twin pillars of Western civilization itself. So Athens and Jerusalem. And so some theologians in the early church would even wonder if there, if we weren't, you know, the, some of the Christians weren't putting, weren't giving Athens too much um, authority in that mix. One of them even said, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem so as to sort of uh, indicate that, hey, your hierarchy is wrong. Jerusalem is above Athens. But nevertheless... Paul put it this way. If Paul is from the North Pole of, of a religious orientation, he has gone to the South Pole. I mean, he's, he's gone to Athens, of all places. And here he is, as we find him in that passage. He's a scholarly Jew, as we know. He's a former Pharisee, wasn't he? Trained as a Pharisee. 
But he's standing in a place that's very different from all that. He's standing on what you could call the ultimate free speech zone of the ancient world. The Areopagus. Behold, there it is in that image. The Areopagus. I mean, it stands today. Because the Areopagus is the kind of thing that wasn't just built by some people, so it's not going to be in ruins. I mean, there are temples and other features that are sort of in ruins. I mean, they're not what they once were. But features like the Areopagus don't change a lot over thousands of years. Because it's a big giant rock or a hill of sorts. It was part of this raised area of Athens called the Acropolis. You sort of see there. So that, that part that's, that's sort of like jutting out most, if you look close enough, you see tiny, there are people on it. You can go visit it today. The Areopagus. It was named after the god Ares, the god of war. So literally what it means is the Areopagus, the hill or rock of Ares. And of course, the Romans had a corresponding pantheon of gods that was basically like, you know, a ripoff of the Greeks. It was the, they were basically the Greek gods with Roman names. And so the god of war for the Romans wasn't named Ares. He was named Mars. Mars. And that's why in some translations, Paul is standing on Mars Hill. Mars Hill equals the Areopagus. It's the same place. It's not a translation conflict. It's the same place, just whether you're going to give it the Greek name or the Roman name. So that's what it is, and that, that's where he was. Geographically, that's where he was. But this place had huge significance. Uh, it stood for, for a lot of things. I mean, in the ancient really ancient world, hundreds of years before the time of Paul, this spot in the city had been sort of the place of the ancient high court or the ancient council of the Athenians. And at this time, when by the time Paul arrives, it's still a popular place. It's a place where people like to gather and discuss things and debate things. It's popular for discussion about whatever's going on, and new ideas, religious movements, you know, the intellectuals would sit around. You know, go ahead and picture them in their togas. Whatever you need to make it seem real. Here's actually what we read, how Paul got here. Which I didn't read these verses, but I'll just read them to you now. The, the preceding verses to let you know how it gets to this point. Paul in Athens, uh, in verse seven, uh, chapter 17. Preceding what I just read about what he says to them there. It says, now, while Paul was waiting... For them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons. So first he's in the synagogue. First he's with, he's with his people where he would often go, talking with the Jews. And in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, so now he's branching out from the Jews, also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. 
We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So that's how you get to the passage that we read here, where Paul is standing there. That's how we got there. He's just a missionary on his journeys. Right? I mean, Paul's traveling everywhere. So he's going to come across. I mean, he's crossed over. He went to Macedonia. Remember he heard that call? He's gone to Macedonia, to the north of Greece. He's come now down into Greece, and here he is in the great city of Athens. He's, he's reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue, as was his custom. But he's out in the marketplace as well, and he's encountering all these different philosophies that were popular at the time, like the Epicureans and the Stoics and others. And they hear him speak, and they can tell this guy is erudite in many ways. They can tell he's got something to say, and he's got a fascinating message. He's talking about someone who came back from the dead. And there's a lot of theology in it, but it's still there's still a little... They're curious, they're unsure, and they say, this guy, we need to haul him up to the free speech zone. We need to take him up to where the intellectuals sit around and analyze and talk and debate. He, he belongs there. Let's bring him up. Come on up and tell us more about this stuff. And so that's where he is. This is his chance. Now, Paul, we could all agree, I think, was uniquely qualified to be the Christian apostle who first brings the gospel to a place like this. Uniquely qualified because Paul was born, Saul, of course, in a Greek city. He's from Tarsus, a Greek city with a university. So even though Greek ideas were everywhere, yeah, even in Palestine there were there were a lot of I mean, it was what they called Hellenism, which is just Greekism, was all over. And the reason it was, of course, is because a guy named Alexander, once upon a time, whose, whose daddy was the king of the Macedonians, Philip, a guy named Alexander, somehow, someway, amazingly, took off and led his armies and just uh, you know went on a string of undefeated victories and, and basically made conquest of most of, as far as the world as he could ride to before he died. <laughs> and everywhere he went and everywhere he conquered, he spread... Greek ideas, or what they called Hellenistic ideas, all that philosophy, science, reasoning, all that stuff, they spread it. That's why you see Greek architecture and all this stuff in, in Egypt, library in Alexandria. That's why you see it even as far as India and across the Middle East. That's why, when, that's why even in, before Christ, in Jerusalem, they had had these Greek kings for a while. One of whom is that guy, Antiochus, we read about, that we talk about, who defiled their temple. All this history had, had, had gone on. So Greekism, Hellenism, was everywhere. But that doesn't mean all the Jews knew about it. So how much of it do you think Peter knew? I mean, so the average blue-collar Jewish a young man like, like Peter, for example, was fisherman, wasn't like Paul in that yeah, it was sort of in the background. Of, it was in the air a little bit, but he hadn't studied it. Paul is the, one, the only one of those guys who really could handle himself in, in such a foreign place, in an intimidating place, like the Areopagus, looking at all these, all, all, of, all of basically the, the philosophical scholars of the age and 
people from all walks and all different religious persuasions and spiritual identities and all this crazy stuff. And here he is. Well, what's he going to say? I mean, he he's given a platform. Go for it. What do you got to say? Tell us. What do you say? You know, for most of us, I would think that if somebody can, I mean, let's just consider the average Christian who truly believes the message and truly believes that the message is important and truly believes that the message should go forth and that the church is called to send it forth and that I would like to do my part. Nevertheless, the average Christian, if today, given given that kind of a stage, if someone just blindsided him and said, guess what? You're up. I got you a national TV spot. You got five minutes. Would be petrified. Wouldn't you be petrified? I mean, in theory, wonderful. I have a chance to share. But in reality, you might you might wish you didn't get that chance. You might you might suddenly feel kind of sick, like <coughs> I think I got the COVID. I got to cancel because it's scary. It's it's intimidating to get the very kind of audience you might, in theory, wish to have, because when you're because then when you're facing it, you feel the weight and the pressure and the intimidation. And so Paul's got a big moment here. And it's fascinating to see how he goes about this. You notice when Paul speaks to them how he tailors this message to this audience. He's not talking to Jews here. Paul is not talking to his usual crowd, is he? He's not talking to his usual crowd. This isn't Paul's usual um, you know, audience with all their presuppositions that he's used to. Whenever he went around to these cities and whenever he went around and he would be, even as he had already done in Athens, it already said he went to the synagogue. Because everywhere, every town he went to, he knew there were Jews there. Because the Jews had been scattered all around. They'd been There was the diaspora. The Jews were everywhere in pockets and segments. And he just knew, I just got to find them. They're here. And that's where he started every time. Because that, that's where he was comfortable. That's where he knew, they know my language, they know my background. My message will, I will already have built in a lot of presuppositions when I walk into the synagogue. When I talk about God, they knew who I'm talking about. When I talk about the law, they know what I'm talking about. If I quote the prophets, they know those verses. So if I use Isaiah to refer to Christ to show that the Messiah had come, they all know what Messiah means. If I talk about a sacrifice and the Lamb of God, they all know what I'm talking about. But not this crowd. Not these philosophers and scientists and politically minded people and people who like to debate the ethical questions and so on and so forth. Not these people. He couldn't count on them understanding what the Torah was. If he quotes Ezekiel to them, they have no clue what he's talking about. They don't know Ezekiel from anyone else. If he quotes the writings, if he gives them a song, it might sound kind of pretty and poetic to them if translated into their language, but they don't have they don't have a reference point for what that means. King David, who was that? Temples? What kind of temples? They know about pagan temples. They don't know about Jewish temples. So he doesn't have any of that. And so you notice how different his approach is. And incidentally, how many places in the world do missionaries go to where they don't have any of that either? You know, it, it gets to be easy in a way in a, in a Christianized society 
and, and ours has been, even though, even though that's less and less true because we've kind of entered into what you could call a post-Christian society where the memory fades and fades away until you wind up with none of the background, none of that base of knowledge is any, is any longer present in people. And it, and it gets to the point where you are, so, you are so past your Christian history that you now have to double back, come around, and start with the basics and begin to talk to people as if they are just pagans. Uh, pagans in the literal sense. Like they're just, they just have some kind of generic earth religion or, a, or, a, or some kind of a, a nondescript deism of some kind. It gets to that point eventually, which, which is all the more reason why this is relevant. This certainly is relevant for missionaries who travel all around the world, and they go to places. And those places don't have a biblical background, and those places don't understand the law, the prophets, the writings. They've never sung a song. They've never heard the 23rd. You know, uh, they, they don't have all that stuff. You can't start Amazing Grace and they finish it. They don't know it. They don't have all that in their background. You can't, you can't quote John 3.16 and they go, oh, yeah, 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 that one. Yeah, when I was a kid, I remember that verse. No, they don't remember that verse when they were a kid. They never heard that one. And so it's it's good to see the example of Paul in a place like that. And how does he do it? Well, you'll notice that he starts with the big picture. Paul has to start basic. He has to put a name and a, and a basic identity on God who was unknown to them. He makes use of this inscription he sees, which sort of symbolizes or stands for, for in many ways, you know, where they were in their mindset. Did the people have basic religious intuitions? Yes, because all people have basic religious intuitions. There is a sense of the divine within people. We've long, always known this. There is, there is the spark. There is this sort of light, dim light, though it may be, a little confused. Maybe maybe it has um, some baggage attached to it that ought not be there. But they have it. People are not by default atheists. That is a mistake. That is, atheism is not the default position. It is in moments and in behavioral, sometimes be in, in our behavior. But people generally have a sense. It is in them to have some sense that God, who and whatever he, she, it may be, is there. They have this. And we can count on people to have something like that. And so Paul doesn't come to them and say, let me just, I want to give you this concept of a being out that's bigger than the world, that everything's not just pure physics. Because most, almost no Greeks thought that. A few did, by the way. A few did. But most didn't. I mean, there were small groups. There were, the, there were what they called the atomists, which is interesting, who just believed that everything was comprised of tiny, teeny, tiny particles. Called atoms, which they didn't by which they didn't mean stuff with electrons. And, they didn't have microscopes. All atom means is unsplittable, which itself is a misnomer as we now know. Unsplittable, atome, cannot be cut, can't be cut in half. Can't. It's the most basic thing. Whatever it was, some people. So there were some people who were sort of materialists, but 97% of all the people, even among the Greeks believed that, no, the world is a spiritual place. And there must be deities, and there must be something. And some of the wisest of the philosophers actually posited something like God, one supreme mind. But what's his name? They don't know. What's he think about things? They don't know. 
Has he given us a word? Has he spoken? They don't know. That's where Paul starts. He says, hmm, you are religious. I'll give you that. Not surprising because people are. You're religious. I see that. He's not, by the way, he's not criticizing them here. He's not being negative. Bunch of religious people. What's wrong with you? And by the way, the word he uses there when he says, I see that in everything you are very religious is not the usual, is not the word translated religious or religion in other places. It's, it's, a, it's a word that's only used here. Only place it's used in the New Testament. And it's about, it's a, it's a long one. I don't, I'm not even showing it to you. It's like eight syllables long. It's a big compound word. And what its basic gist is, is those, it, it describes being sort of under the dominance of, of a spiritual system. Sort of in a kind of bondage or fear of all of, of, of the realm of spirits and divinities. Because most basic pagan religion has that element in it, does it not? There is a certain fear. There is a certain uh, living your life every day with the anxiety that you're not in line with it. You're doing something wrong and all the rights are done in order to get into harmony and please whatever the spirits and the gods are. And it can go to extremes. You know, it shocks us sometimes when you read about what some of the of the religions of people do in order to please divine powers that they think they have to please. So when you read, for example, about um, about the Aztecs, um, it might it might boggle your mind in the most disturbing way to read in detail the the, the uh, ceremonies, if you want to call it that, the religious ceremonies that were performed by Aztecs. When they went up on the top of their uh, their holy, you know, ziggurat or whatever, and they and they were, and you you say, well, I've I've seen this idea where they do a human sacrifice. Yes, not just one, not just one. In, in, when they dedicated one of them, we read about that it had that they spent they spent several days doing it. I'm talking about hundreds upon hundreds of people being sacrificed, including children. They just lined them up. I mean, it, it's it's bizarre. It's bizarre. Body parts, you know, thrown down to the people, taken home and eaten. And you, you know, you read this stuff, and you just think, can that really be true? By the way, there's a reason why there's a reason why when Cortez showed up to fight the Aztec armies, he had a lot of help with him. You know who he you know who he had? He didn't bring that many Spaniards with him. He had a whole bunch of help from warriors from other tribes who were ready to go take down the Aztecs. Why? Because where do you think those sacrifices came from? They came from their tribes. They, the leading Aztecs didn't take their own family members and take them up there. So, religion can have the element that that word implies, in many cases. A certain life of fear, being sort of under a system of spiritual dominance. It's not liberating. And so that's the, that's the word he uses anyway. Not to read too much into a word, but it is a unique word, and only used there. And he says to them, this is, this is who we're talking about. And what's he like? Well... For starters, he made everything you see. Well, that sounds basic. But notice he's just doing the basic stuff. Again, he can't, he can't assume what is 
The Jewish audience, oh yeah, we know, in the beginning God created everything. No, they don't necessarily know that. He's got to tell them that. God created everything you see. The majestic eagle, not a god. The sun, not a god. You know, death itself, not a real thing. There are evil spirits, but, you know, God made the stuff that people like to worship. He has to tell them God created everything. And and then, so a word about God, a word about creation, and a word about mankind. See how these are the most basic doctrines people have? The most basic doctrines of all. And then that, so that gets us to the two verses then in verse 26 and 27, which I want to, I want to focus on here as a, a sort of a beginning point of, a, of something I want to spend a little time on for a couple of weeks because it's relevant to today. Verses 26 and 27, he says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Hmm. So here's the here is this mention of all mankind, all of humanity, all the peoples of the earth. And what he says about them is of the utmost significance for the for the Greek intellectuals, the Areopagus, and for now, today. So as you see here, what it literally says is from one, every nation of men. From one. It doesn't have it doesn't have a you know, the ESV says from one man. That's sort of, that's a translation choice to kind of help make sense of it. It literally says from one. As you see, it says, and it says from one, and I show you this, all nations of men, because it might look sensible enough, the Greek saying, pan ethnos anthropon. Pan all or every, ethnos, every nation or people, Anthropone of mankind, of men, of humanity. From one, he made them all. And the King James says, from one blood. Kind of like that. From one blood, every nation. That's his, that is his word to these sophisticates about human beings. Here is God. Here's the world. God made the world. But what about us? He made us too, he tells them. He made us too. Some of them might have thought, people are eternal. No, you're not. People are gods. No, you're not. You're created. God made human beings. But more than that, made them all, every kind you ever would see, every nation everywhere. And more than that, he made them all from one. In other words, however you want to play out the timeline of all this, there is a unifying feature to all human beings. This is a this is a this is a very you know it couldn't get more basic, could it? Foundation for how you view people of every type all around the world that they're from one blood, one and the same. And well, they all live in different parts of the world with different customs, and it's all their yes. And that's no shock to God because for his own reasons, he saw fit that it would be that way. Placing the people all around the world 
looking different, acting different in various ways, having different culture, custom, living in different climates, and so on and so forth. That's all his business. That's all his doing. But they're all from one blood. They're all from one. From one every nation, every people. So for a few weeks, I want to address this topic, in a sense, of race that has so completely consumed public discussion in our own culture. What, what, uh, what do we do? What do Christians do whenever there is something that we look around and is sort of having this kind of all-consuming uh, effect? What do we do? We listen to Revelation to try to get an unclouded and as best we can non-political understanding of that thing. And in fact, uh, based on this truth here, next week I want to consider something. I'll just tell you what it is. Consider whether or not race as we use it today is even a biblical or scientific category. And, uh, you know, spoiler, and it may surprise you to hear it, I am going to cast serious doubt on the very idea of race itself as it's widely used today by most people. The emphasis of Paul, see, to this crowd in Athens is that God made, he made, he turned one, he turned one into every uh, important kind of cultural, you know, all the nations, all the ethnoi of the people, all made in his image, all appointed to their unique circumstances all around the world, and gave them a sense of the divine so that they will be religiously inclined and will be seeking and, and seeking to find God. So the Bible knows of one primary race, and that is the people made in God's image. But, scattered around as nations, every single ethnos, every single different nation of people, with the same goal for all of them. So again, more on that to come. But this will matter to have, it will matter just for the processing of these things for us and how we Look at people all around the world. It matters for the mission movement that takes place all around the world. And it matters also in, in sort of dis, the dispelling of falsehoods among people. We're like Paul in many ways. You may not even want to be brought to the Areopagus. But, but as it said in chapter 17, they, they hear him talking and they brought him to the Areopagus. Ah, this guy's got a weird message. Let's hear more. And you and I may be brought to places and given a platform here or there, different times and places, small or large, where people say, what? Tell me more. What do you say about it? And this is a good lesson to us. This is a good example to us to be like the apostle himself, ready, ready to start even from scratch, even from square absolute one. You know, maybe in a case where someone has zero background knowledge that you can count on so that you're so that any Christian terminology or any biblical reference even lands with them, because maybe it doesn't. And so you've got to learn how to start right at the beginning. You've got to learn to talk big picture, to talk God and man and creation. 
And especially in, and particularly in this case, as we will be looking, how to understand us, people. What makes us the same? What makes us different? And what does it matter? And how does it work? And what does it mean for us in terms of how we live and how we conduct ourselves? Because ultimately, you know, the, the truth, regardless of what happens around the world, wars among people, tribe upon tribe, conflicts, hostilities, whatever, whatever they may be, uh, the truth of, of those simple words is not going to change from one all the nations.